The curse of plug is a myth. You'll go to prison for false accusation. Some strange woman on the Northern Line didn't say hello to him. It made me want to go out and buy a Brian Adams album. All personality for damp Rivita crisp bread. Stay away from our music, you blue freaks. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that nobody else ever seems to. If you're a regular Looks Unfamiliar listener, you might have heard me quite frequently make reference to Hits 5, a late 1986 compilation album mainly featuring singles from the CBS and WEA labels, which frankly, as far as I'm concerned, is pretty much the ultimate pop compilation. I wouldn't be quite as quick to say that about Hits 4 from earlier in 1986, which not only features a cover of a bit like a studio line from L'Oreal Tin, but also, while it might have some really kind of iconic 80s hits from people like Madonna, Pet Shop Boys and Wham on it, it's mainly just a parade of the other single by people known for a more prominent hit. For example, Don't Waste My Time by Paul Hardcastle, Hit That Perfect Beat by Bronsky Beat, Come Hello Waters High by DC Lee, and Kyrie by Mr. Mister. The band better known for Broken Wings, who apparently regarded the idea of choosing a name that sounded funny the first time you heard it and progressively less funny each subsequent time you heard it, as adopted by the B-Sharps and the Simpsons as some kind of aspirational career aim, all looked like they were actually some of their own fans who stood at the back and somehow ended up filling in for the actual band in an emergency, and all answered questions to smash hits like they were being asked to name their favourite stock rate fluctuation in the financial Times only in as non-committal a manner as possible. Of course, there are lots of other hits that people remember, but do they really remember other comics? Well, podcasters Lisa Parker and Andrew Trowbridge certainly do, because they want to talk about a certain DC Thompson and Co. comic that really possibly shouldn't have happened to begin with. In a word, plug. Or, in three words, and I've got to get this right, Percival Proudfoot Plugsley. Plug of the Bash Street Kids got his own spin-off comic in 1977. It didn't run that long. It ran September 77 to February 79. I've got a disc mm-hmm. with Plug on, yeah. but I can't tell you about the later editions because I've discovered it's suffering from disc rot. So... I can only talk about the early issues at the moment. Well, there's an even bigger mystery than what's in the later issues because my single overriding question about this whole exercise is why plug? Why do a spin-off comic based on plug? And on top of that, why make it sport themed? Well, this is it. I was looking back at these, you know, the few issues I can review and I thought, I don't remember it being this sporty. It's full of sort of football-y things. But there's also the plug sports and social club that you can join. You send off your money and you get sort of lapel badges and things like that. Sports and Social Club makes it sound like, you know, the sort of places you would go with elder male relatives when you were young in the 70s, had kind of green bays on the walls and people playing backgammon. Yeah, you know, that's what Sports Social Clubs were in those days. It just has that air in. Well, I was just thinking of the Wheel Tappers and Shunters Club. <laughs> plug wouldn't last three minutes in there. <laughs> All the jokes would be about the poor lads. <laughs> Actually, we should just feel it. Anyone who doesn't know, plug was one of the Bass Street kids in the Beano, and he was, quote, the ugly one. And periodically there'll be a rumour that they're going to make politically correct Bass Street kids and make him look normal. And, you know, the Daily Mail explodes and Piers Morgan says, aha, aha, what if I do good-looking Frankenstein? Ah, thinks that's funny. And then it doesn't happen because it was never going to happen. But I still can't figure out why any 
anyone thought anyone needed a spin-off comic headed by him because there were so many other characters. They could have done a Minnie the Minx comic, a standalone Dennis the Menace one, even Walter the Softy would have had higher standing. Even Babyface Finlayson. Why plug? There's no explanation anywhere out there for well, it. Well, the weird thing, he's not in it actually that much anyway. He's like on the front cover and he gets a page of his own. You get his little brother, Elvis, who's got a whole page where he looks at different football teams each week. Okay, now this is very unfortunate timing for a character called Elvis, <laughs> September 1977. <laughs> oh yes, I hadn't, I hadn't worked that one out. But yeah, most of the other strips have got nothing to do with Plug. It's the one that I really remembered looking back Manchester United, which was the insect football team. And there's like this sort of team photo, mm. isn't there? And you've got all these insects, which are basically, they're sort of humanoid, aren't they? But they've yeah. got like sort of antenna and things yeah. like that. They're more sort of ant men than they yeah. are yeah. ants. There's some sort of horrible experiment going yeah. on, isn't there? So you've got Sterling Moth. And I thought, well, he doesn't play football for a start. He's a racing driver. Yeah. <laughs> David Larvey, Brian Greenfly, Nat Lofthouse... And having remembered that name for all of my life, that's mm. the only time I ever got a pointless answer on Pointless about football. Yes. Thanks, Plug. <laughs> Mantis Buchan, Crawling Todd, Francis Flea, Spiderweb, George Beastie. Now, I said to you, has George Best got a hairy face? Because he well, has in he, this. he had a beard. But I think that was after he stopped playing football, right. wasn't it? I don't know the chronology of George Best. Kevin Beetle, Auntie Grey, Mike Summerby, and the referee is Samuel Peeps. Because he peeps on his whistle, on his whistle, yeah. if you'll pardon the expression. The puns don't really work just generally across plug. Because one thing I noticed was there was a strip called Lunch and Vulture. <laughs> oh, yes. And it took me about five minutes to think, what does that actually mean? Obviously, it's meant to be Lunch and Voucher, but it doesn't work. <laughs> and there's also Ava Bernard. Yes, who yes. was described as a very strong female athlete. Now, I'll admit, I was worried before I looked that up what she was going to look like. Thankfully, my worst visions didn't come true. <laughs> but the one that really really puzzled me was what about a pop group called the Banshees? Oh, yes. Which is interesting because it's clearly, although they themselves aren't really analogous to Susie and the Banshees, it's obviously a nod to them. But at that point, although there were no name, because obviously Susie was on the famous Sex Pistols Bill Grundy interview and so on, they hadn't actually released a single. So either somebody at DC Thompson was unusually on the ball. When I say unusually on the ball with media trends, I mean it involves something post-1938. <laughs> but it seemed quite very timely. And the whole vibe about this is quite timely as well. I mean, I don't quite understand where the sport thing comes into it, but it's clearly chiming with what was going on in the wider world. And it seems dangerously modern for a DC <laughs> Thompson comic, which maybe is why it didn't last that long. There's one that did spring out at me that I remembered as well, which was, and I'm going to have to say it the way it's written, GNU Faces. Yes, I remember GNU Faces. <laughs> yes. But they do not even spelt GNU correctly. They spelt it with two O's instead of a U. So even that's wrong. There were these three GNUs who wanted to be in show business. So they'd appear on their equivalent of New Faces. Even the judges uh, plays on the sort of regulars. So you've got Mickey Musk, Tony Scratch, Arthur Aardvark and Lionel Bear. Oh. <laughs> 
Do you remember Lionel Blair being on New Faces, Lisa, I, I don't or was really this before your time? New Faces, no. no. I remember, the, I think it was a revival in the 90s mm. with Nina Mishkoff on being her yeah. usual pleasant self. But yeah, that's the only thing I've ever seen in New Faces. There's also Eddie Daring, which is a pun, obviously, on the commentator Eddie Waring. I think the pun came before the identity <laughs> the strip there. There was also Ebagoom. Yes, which that and Manchester United survived when Plug inevitably had the cover message saying, great news for all inside, <laughs> which is what comics always said when they were closing and merging with something else. It merged with the Beezer, which was always my favourite the DC Thompson comics, because it was madder. It was more, I don't want to say hallucinogenic, but it was more surreal. It had stranger ideas for the basis behind the strips and so on. And those two fitted better in the Beezer than they did in Plug. Yeah, because really. Ebi Goom was actually, it's a colour strip. Some of the other ones are sort of fairly shonky black and white. So clearly this was the pair that they threw a bit of money at. I think it's the first place I ever heard about tripe, though, because it's very sort of northern cliches, isn't it, e by Goom? I'm still struggling with the whole plug thing, <laughs> because I don't even think he's that iconic, really. The note on the Wikipedia entry, A, it was expensive at nine pence. <laughs> I, don't, I don't regard nine pence as... And there's a note here that rumours of the curse of plug. Apparently a number of celebrities featured on the front cover died soon afterwards, notably John John Wayne. Are you familiar with the 17th century bills of mortality they used to publish? I just imagine like plug three died of plug. I just wonder who these cover stars were because I've actually just been trying to look up while we're talking the covers of plug. All I can see the first issue had something called a screaming demon yeah. in it, which is kind of a balloon that made a noise. All the other ones just seem to have plug in various scenarios and no sign of any celebrities at all. And also there's the cover of the issue of Deadpool as well which yeah. doesn't bear any relevance. <laughs> I'm sure he would have loved to make a cameo in plug but it was a bit early but yeah. who are these celebrities and where did they where has this story come from? Hang on I found yes. one. It's got John Travolta on it, who is still alive. <laughs> the curse of plug is a myth. But you were saying about the free gift. I remember getting a Jazoo free with plug. An orange kazoo. And I'm sure it was from plug issue 19. Here we go. Yes, I've got it. Free in plug, the amazing Jazoo. What were you supposed to play on it? Was there some plug theme that I don't know? <laughs> All I can remember is the taste of that plastic in my mouth. Because it was so cheap. The moment you put it in your mouth, it would start to disintegrate. Microplastic poisoning. Maybe that's the curse of plug. I don't know. To avoid adding to plug's woes, maybe if you just pretend that the actual curse was the fact that it cost nine pence and nobody could afford it. Cabaret's Cabana, a mid-80s high-end confection, was similarly prohibitively expensive to the extent that hardly anyone ever got a chance to try it. Comedian and actor Toby Haydock nearly got the chance once, but as you'll find out, things didn't quite go his way. This is a great tragedy of my life, Tim. <laughs> My life has been largely missing out on things and terrible disappointment. And the Cabana Bar is almost an embodiment of this. They were quite expensive. And I seem to recall they had dark blue wrappers. And they were a winning combination of things I love. Dark chocolate, always liked a bit of dark chocolate, with coconut inside. And then a sort of cherry, not fondant, but a sort of cherry goo along the top. And I can't describe exactly because they were expensive. We didn't have an awful lot of money. But when my mum took me back to this boarding school I had to go to where I didn't fit in because I was the only person whose dad didn't own a Porsche I was allowed to go to the, we stopped off and I had I was sick to the stomach because I wasn't going to be home for another six days and it, it was terrifying it was awful 
But that sickness was then diluted just on the way on the Sunday night because I got dropped off on the Sunday night and I got picked up again on the Saturday afternoon. So I literally had 24 hours at home, really. We stopped at the garage and I got, I was allowed, I think, 40 peas worth of sweets, which would last me the week. And the garage had loads of one penny sweets and, you know, Parma violets and things like that. But for some reason that week, probably a kindly old lady, I occasionally got pity from old ladies, had given me, I think, a pound and cabanas, I think, I don't know, I, I've got to, they felt like they were like 52p, but they probably weren't. But they were certainly, a, for the amount of penny chews you could have got, or palmer violets, or, you know, fizz bombs, or whatever, a cabana was quite an outlay for a single thing. But I'd got money to burn, and I went, I'm gonna, I've got myself a cabana. And I'd never had one. So I got the cabana, and I put it in my locker, and a young man, I actually looked him up on Facebook the other day, he's doing very well for himself. <laughs> It's called Dominic, but I, and remember, all these kids at this school were well off, and I wasn't. There's an extra injustice there. Nicked it, and I can't remember how I worked out that he'd nicked it, but I think maybe I saw the wrapper on the end of his bed or something like that, because I said, I think you've nicked that cabana. And he said, and I remember him saying to me, no, I didn't, and if you say that, you'll go to prison for false accusation, because that's a crime. <laughs> and then I remember when I found the evidence or whatever, it went, but that's that. I remember him being really obsequious and go, oh, God, please don't tell anybody yes I did I didn't I just, just I've never had one and blah 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 and I'm of a forgiving nature so I forgave him and we were very good friends then for a bit presumably while he realized he had to be nice to me for a bit before because if you go to prison for false accusation imagine what sentence you get for stealing a cabana <laughs> but the long so not only was this injustice that I'd been robbed by somebody whose dad probably owned fucking Ken was that shortly after or I don't know the time scale of it but cabanas were eventually discontinued which means I have never even though I had one in my possession I have never eaten a cabana so there is a big empty hole with a story of injustice and I'd actually forgotten until I started telling this story some of the details but I definitely remember him saying you'll go to prison for false accusation <laughs> And yeah, because I knew I was coming on here, I did look him up on Facebook and he looks very happy. But I wonder if there's a burden of guilt that he's never quite been able to escape. Well, I don't think I ever actually had one either. And I'm not sure why that is. But unfortunately, my only equivalent story is there was a boy in my junior school called Stephen Cabana. And there was great excitement that he one day had a cabana. <laughs> Which he probably did just for the attention. But I don't know why I never had one. Maybe it was because they were a bit expensive, but I was always looking for the... You know, I don't know, you could get two flakes for that, and flakes yes. weren't even cheap. I've always been a get-more-for-less kind of guy. You know, if I'm looking at a menu, I always think, I like all the things in that more than all the things in that, but I think that one might be bigger. <laughs> so, I've, you know, I've always, I've always go for quantity over quality. But I'm hoping... I can't imagine it was just a bounty with jam in it. Do you know what I mean? I imagine it must have had... I think it felt like it was a bit like a Caribbean cocktail. It felt like it might be alcoholic, even though it wasn't. I think that's partially the price tag, but also because of the combination of things that were in it and maybe the way it was marketed, I can't remember. But it certainly felt like it was a bit sort of grown up. But as I say, it can't have just been a bounty with the bit of cherry jam. That would be terribly disappointing and you'd think rather too crowded a market to have two such similar things. But I know that it was a real shock to me when I got older and you'd have the conversation about, you know, Quality Street and Cabaret roses where you know the coconut ones were pretty much amongst the first to go in Haydock Towers and I know people but in fact recently our local co-op they had some ladies outside to whom you could give your bounty celebrations back 
and they would swap them for a better celebration because the marketing wheeze was, you know, nobody likes the bounty ones. What? That's, if I ever needed proof that I'm out of step with the majority. The idea that the coconut one is deemed as the lesser sweet in the pack is totally alien to me. If you want to criticise the coffee cream, I'm with you. That was always bottom of the pile, but the coconut one was always very much craved. That and the Montelimar, the nougat. But it does lead to another coconut confectionery that I would champion that I'm not sure anyone remembers members for a while they brought out to accompany the normal feast ice lolly which is chocolate ice cream surrounded by chocolate nutty shell and in the middle this sort of plastic chocolate lump that is both disgusting yet quite moorish it was like eating you know some of the machinery in a chocolate factory that had just got sort of somehow infused with the flavor of the chocolate that it made but was 100% plastic they were somehow I don't know quite moorish and for a while they did mint feasts and coconut feasts and ye olde tuck shoppy in Ludlow always had coconut feasts for this very short time period and it was definitely my go-to ice. I finally found an ice lolly that I thought was a definite go-to to me that was slightly different to the fab or the tangle twister and I remember loving the coconut feast but it was a very short-lived thing so it seems to me that people try with coconut but they can never quite they can never quite succeed apart from the enduring bounty. Well yeah there does seem to be a bit of a thread there. I'm sure there were probably other examples we think about but we do have to talk about really that advert which isn't that offensive but it's a little bit live and let die should we say but I'm quite astonished when I look back I mean I know it is easy to judge the past by the standards of today but some of the adverts that were aimed at kids that were around then I mean even the lilt ones are a little bit dodgy and then you've got things like yeah. the bandit one with all you know the banditos and you can stand it with bandit get your chin off the floor the new big bar bandit is as big as jail door they all escape oh. from prison <laughs> waving bandits there's the <laughs> I still can't believe either of these were actually allowed even at the time. There was a Walkers one, you know, because there's this thing about, I don't understand how Walkers came to dominate the crisp market entirely because there was a time, they were the uppity newcomers that nobody really liked as much as KP or Golden Wonder or Smiths and they just stealthily took over. But one of their earliest adverts had a Chinese guy in, I think it was Paddington Station, but approaching a kiosk and a bloke trying to palm me off with Honest John's Crisp saying, Nah, me old China, you want these, not walkers. And he got so angry that he did kung fu and smashed up the stall. <laughs> but there was also, I can't remember what the range was, something like Ross Home Takeaways or something, where, you know, it was a terrible gambit of, you know, you could have hamburger or tandoori, whatever that was, every night of the week. And it had a crowd of takeaway restaurant owners marching down the street towards the Ross factory shouting, Loss, loss, very angrily. Oh, no. Even that, that I just can't quite figure out how people thought that was all right even then. I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's always funny how, you know, occasionally you'll... In fact, I did a radio thing yesterday and the presenter was, you know, somebody had rung in and said, comedy's not as good as it used to be. And the presenter went, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I, and I had to sort of go, do you know what? I think context is everything and nostalgia is very important, but there are some things that we don't do anymore and there's a very, very good reason. And it doesn't make your life any worse <laughs> because we've sort of chosen not to say and do some of the things that seem perfectly acceptable.
acceptable then. That's why I think it's always good to, you know, learn from history and have your eyes... Because sometimes, I, you know, as a 48-year-old man, I go, oh, God, you know, young kids stay there a bit touchy about stuff. And then you're reminded of the things that you were exposed to as a kid and go, no, there's a reason we progress and move forward. And, you know, it's a natural reaction to not like change, but there's a reason that things change. And be careful not to be an old stick in the mud. Something else we don't do anymore, for entirely different reasons, is something that caused sport tries to carry down a very different kind of childhood trauma. The Isle of Wight Waxworks in Braiding. This is an absolute fundamental part of my childhood. And I have gone down a bit of a rabbit hole in recent months because I visited the Isle of Wight quite recently. And the Waxworks has been gone, long gone now. And there's this Facebook group trying to track down where all the waxworks have been rehomed and <laughs> where they've gone since the waxworks closed down because the whole museum was sold off at some point and some of the stuff was sold off separately <laughs> there's this, just photographic evidence of these poor waxworks just being dumped outside buildings or the chamber of horrors has been repurposed as a halloween attraction at a local pub but yes this was absolutely incredible and also incredibly horrific part of my childhood memories and holidays because they had this really quite vivid chamber of horrors and I could tell you worrying amounts about devices of torture as used in the 16th century purely from my holidays in the Isle of Wight in the 1990s. Yeah it's another thing that's surprisingly despite the group you mentioned being very active and thriving and very dedicated to tracking them all down. I love them I love every single person in that group it's crazy and when they find like heads or or arms or something they belong to a waxwork <laughs> they buy them and they have them in their houses and they're trying to piece it all back together and I love that but apart from that there's very little out there all of been able to find for certain is it was originally called Braiding Waxworks. It opened in 1965 and it closed in 2010. And a really enterprising guy in the 2000s bought it and kept trying to relaunch it, trading on that reputation in different ways. Like it was rebranded as an experience at one point and it incorporated something called the World of Wheels at one point, which is like a history of wheels. Successively, there were all these relaunches in the 2000s. So Madison might have opened it at one point. I don't know. The only thing apart from that is there was a notorious model of a sweep who lived in squalid conditions yes, there was a local was spy yeah. yeah yes it and there was, was a queen yeah. victoria that tapped its foot yes that was quite sinister you kind of sit there and you watch and she'd be breathing and tapping her foot when she got impatient and there's also there was one where there was a skeleton playing the organ playing to carter and fugue in d minor and then the coffin lid next to him would rise up and some would sit up out oh yes this is high tech for the early 90s it was incredible I don't understand why not more people went to it in that case. That sounds brilliant. I think it's a very specific kind of entertainment. I guess after kind of the Channel Tunnel and stuff, you then compete with Euro Disney and stuff, aren't you? That being more easily accessible. People aren't going to the Isle of Wight on holiday and they're not looking at going to a waxworks. We did. We went to the Isle of Wight a lot when I was a kid and my sister and I both vividly remember the Chamber of Horrors. When I found that Facebook group, I was just sending screen grabs to her. Do you remember this bit? Do you remember this bit? And there was some really quite sinister stories bearing in mind how young we were there was like a little girl 
girl who died and this tiny little chimney sweep who was being stuck up the chimney and oh and as I say the chamber of horrors there was a Henry VIII waxwork and I'm not quite sure what his title Isle of Wight was but of course that was all very graphic in how he killed his wives good times good times well it's reminded me a little of something I've wanted to bring into this for quite a while and nobody's ever chosen anything that's really reflected it was Wigan Pier as in George Orwell the road to Wigan Pier in the 80s had a kind of what was described as a living museum on the site where it had a recreation of you know parts of Wigan through the ages like there was a Victorian classroom that you were counted into by a teacher who made you do sums and inspected your handkerchiefs and so on all kinds of great things like you know the tableau with a Wigan casino with some people said it had people doing Northern Soul dancing I don't remember it though I can't imagine like two poor actors having to backflip all day <laughs> on a loop but there are all kinds of great things like that but dotted throughout it there were waxworks and things like station porters and so on you know just random yeah. points around this museum there were also a lot of people in there who were just standing dressed kind of old fashionedly anyway because in those days people that you got in these kind of tourist attractions were a little old-fashioned but they would be standing stock still and you just think they were in the backpack and then they suddenly move when they've had enough oh. staring or whatever they've been staring at for half an hour i remember there was one year and i refused to go in the chamber of horrors because i was just like i, I, I couldn't <laughs> deal with it i don't know why because it would i would have been in the year before and i must have gone the year after there was one year i just refused to go in there because i didn't want to see any more of the horrific torture devices but yes that kind of sense of peril is an important part of a childhood holiday I think are waxwork exhibits still even a thing really because obviously there's still Madame Tussauds well I assume it still exists I don't actually know but they used to be all over the place yeah. and then they dwindled down to I think the infamous Louis Tussauds, Louis Tussauds. in the Blackpool yeah. which he was supposed to like a 14th cousin 8 million times removed of Madame Tussauds like yeah, yeah famously they weren't young, very good but yeah. I think they started playing on that ironically eventually yeah they did yeah I think waxworks are not so much of a thing anymore are they I know Madden Tussauds now does obviously they've got the planetarium there as well and they do the kind of superhero interactive experiences and things like that I don't know perhaps people don't want to see waxworks of famous people because we see famous people all the time on the internet now I don't know maybe that's it yeah we probably want to see less of them really we'll go to just a, a darkened room with no internet and no windows and we'll just like lie down everyone just be quiet and not watch any screens and not see any famous people. I'd pay for that. There are more conventional and slightly less nightmarish collectibles that people are prepared to pay a great amount of money for. And quiz expert David Smith had a quite interesting tale behind how he came to own a very rare album without owning anything to play it on. Stranger in This Town is quite simply my favourite album of all time. And the title track is my favourite song of all time. I have been a massive Bon Jovi fan since the age of about 14, 15, like that. And when I got into the band, I got properly obsessed to the point where I bought every single album. I was scouring the internet back when illegal file sharing was in its heyday. I was trying to find every B-side, every demo, every bonus track that I could find. And once I'd exhausted the Bon Jovi catalogue, 
I started looking into the band's solo albums and John Bon Jovi had done a couple. David Bryan, the keyboardist, had done an album of classical piano music, which I listened to, and that's actually amazing. And then I listened to Richie Sambora's solo albums. So this is his first solo album. It's from 1991, when at the end of the 80s, Bon Jovi took a few years off. They went on hiatus and Richie Sambora decided he wanted to do an album. And it's an album of sort of blues rock. It's it's a lot more in the tune of sort of kind of Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, that kind of genre. It's a lot more than the hair metal of Bon Jovi. And he actually recruited Tico Torres, the Bon Jovi drummer, and David Bryan, the Bon Jovi keyboardist, to record it. This album, Stranger in This Town, Richie Sambora's first solo record, is basically what Bon Jovi would sound like if John Bon Jovi wasn't in the band. And I don't know what it says about me as a Bon Jovi fan that my favourite album of all time is the one that doesn't have John Bon Jovi on it. Ever since I listened to it, it's the album that I've listened to more than any other. It comes with a set of instructions which are turn down the lights, light a candle, welcome. And it is the it's the perfect record for listening to just sort of late at night, just to chill out. Like I say, it's a really smooth sort of blues rock record with lots of great ballads on it. And I think it is utterly spellbinding. And it has been my favourite album since I was about 17. And yeah, I just think it is absolutely brilliant. And whenever I recommend it to people, I recommend it to people all the time, obviously, because it's my favourite record. And even people who aren't Bon Jovi fans come back to me and say, yeah that album was brilliant thanks for giving that to me well i was really really surprised by it because i don't know that much about bon jovi beyond i had slippery when wet because everyone did you know at yeah. that point and i know the hits and so on and i had kind of gone into this expecting it to be because you know around the same time john bon jovi does blaze of glory from young guns 2 the film song yep. blue diamond phillips as a rock according to the original film poster for it blaze of glory isn't that different to bon jovi you know it's without Richie Sambora's soloing, really. And I thought this would be the soloing without the songs, but it's completely not. He's gone off in a different direction. And I think the timing was perfect, because if you look at... I mean, Bon Jovi had taken, as you say, a couple of years off. And I can say, I appreciate, you know, the reception's probably changed since then. But I remember when I was at school, the people who really liked Bon Jovi didn't really like New Jersey, the album, after Slippery When Wet, because it was kind of viewed as more of the same, really. They'd not moved on. But, yeah. you know, in those couple of years, you get all kinds of things happening. Like, obviously, Nirvana is the big thing that changed what was going on. But you've also got Extreme kind of took the dexterity of metal and made it a bit funkier, brought, you know, folk and acoustic into it. And they didn't last very long, obviously, as a major proposition. But I think they changed the rules a bit. The people like Dogster Moore, the Dan Reed Network, Guns N' Roses, you know, released two albums albums that sold i don't even want to estimate how much they sold so if he released something that was more like bon jovi i think he would have come very unstuck around them but this is completely different like you say it is really laid back it's really bluesy it's about dexterity but not in a show-off way it's about how he can enhance the music with his playing it does unfortunately have eric clapton guesting on one track which is yeah. called mr bluesman which you know is something you would make up as a joke about eric clapton guesting <laughs> on something but it's so much better than i had anticipated when I say better I mean in terms of it is much more interesting and I wonder if it kind of helped shape because another thing I know about Bon Jovi is when they came back with Keep the Faith now that's very different to what they'd done before they had clearly been listening to what was going on and they were taking themselves and the music a bit more seriously maybe and I wonder if because I assume this was a big critical success if that had any bearing on that yeah it's interesting because they did evolve sort of when the 90s happened I think they realised they saw because, yeah, there are four years between New Jersey and Keep the Faith. And New Jersey, like you say, it's kind of just slippery when wet, but again. And, you know, that's not a bad 
thing because you know i loved slippery when wet but they saw what nirvana and soundgarden and people like that were doing and they realized that the scene was changing they decided to go down the sort of harder rock they cut their hair they got rid of the synthesizers and decided to go with sort of piano based stuff because that album's got bed of roses on it it's got sleep when i'm dead which is just sort of straight up hard rock and yeah between that and particularly the album afterwards these days which is properly sort of heavy grungy if you listen to any of the songs on that like hey god they're properly heavy and they sound like they could have been on a nirvana record but it's interesting talking about stranger in this town and how it's different from new jersey because there is one track on there which is a bon jovi holdover which is rosy and in my opinion it's one of the weaker tracks on the album and i think it is because it's nothing like any of the others because it is just a straight up sort of Bon Jovi song whereas the others have that kind of smooth sort of bluesy sound to them I remember when I was talking to a friend of mine I told him how much I loved this record he actually found the LP in a shop in Glasgow I'd like obviously he knew it was my favourite album he said to me he found this shop in Glasgow just off Queen Street Station he found the LP and he thought if I'd remembered at the time I would have bought it for you I went back to that shop next time I was in Glasgow I went back a few months later <laughs> the one day that I decided to go and look for this record record happened to be record store day so the queue to get into the record shop was an hour and a half long i had to wait an hour and a half to get into this record shop and completely ignore all the exclusive record store day stuff that everyone else was there for i just went in and went yes i'd like this one old obscure record please it was my first ever lp that i bought and i got this this was the summer of 2014 i got this record and of course in the six months since my friend had spotted it it hadn't been sold nobody knew what it was and i didn't get a record player for an another six years so i just framed this record put it on my wall and i'd take it down and take it round to my friend's house to listen to just to check it was all right <laughs> but i bought a vinyl record and then didn't have anything to play it on for six years yeah and apparently if i was looking on ebay yesterday and it goes for like a hundred quid this record now it's that rare but i can't see anything ever topping it because i just think it is phenomenal well one really interesting thing is it seems to have done much better over here than it did in america which probably kind of explains its scarcity now was you know there aren't sort of millions of copies of america lying around but it had a modicum of success over here although one of my two criticisms of it and i'll come back to the one in a minute is that i think ballad of youth was a baffling idea for a single there are much oh, yeah. more obvious things on here but even ballad of youth did reasonably well in the uk that is quite interesting that in some ways people weren't interested maybe in what the individual members did in america but there's always that tendency over here to follow people a bit more from bands yeah definitely that was a thing particularly in the 90s the uk was sort of bon jovi fandom central like there were singles that were released over here that were never released anywhere else and i think particularly in the 90s especially keep the faith in these days had something like six or seven top 10 hits between them like if i ever got to go on pointless and the question was top 40 bon jovi singles i could <laughs> rattle off a whole bunch oh, it's it's really annoyed me as a bon jovi fan because there are several bands that i know that are guilty of this but bon jovi are one of the worst they are the worst single choosers i've ever seen like there are so many brilliant songs on their albums that are deeper cuts and they always decide to go with sort of the blandest power ballad or the most repetitive monotonous sounds like everything they've done before kind of song instead of the much more interesting stuff that's later on down the album and they do this every single album cycle and it always annoys me and yeah i think ballad of youth if you wanted to get a snapshot of what stranger in this town sounds like you go with the title track you go with mr blues man you go with one light burning or even even father time which i think is just a brilliant extended power ballad 
it does annoy me that that was the one thing. But then again, I don't know how much of that was Richie Sambora's choice, whether that was the record company thinking they knew what the people wanted. You know, there's all the always these questions about it. Speaking of the title track, I mean, like I say, that is my favourite song of all time, mainly because when I first got into Stranger in this town, I just moved away from home. I moved from Scotland down to Kent. So I was 400 miles away from home. And, you know, Stranger in this town, I'm walking around the streets of Canterbury with that in my head. And that sort of stayed with me, you know. And I thought it was a song that I would never, ever hear live whenever Sam Bora, like Sam Bora only ever toured with Bon Jovi because you know that's where the audience was and occasionally on the shows in the 90s he would get a chance to do one of his solo songs he would either sing I'll Be There For You from the New Jersey album or he'd get to sing one of his solo songs and he would always do Stranger In This Town because that's the title track but then he stopped doing that in about the 2000s when I started getting into them and then out of the blue in 2012 he decided to do a little tour of the UK just the UK and I don't know if that's because again of the fact that Bon Jovi fandom seemed to be at its peak in this country but yeah he did a little show at Shepherd's Bush Empire and I took along a friend of mine who was a Bon Jovi fan who didn't know any of his solo stuff and he did a whole bunch of interesting stuff like obviously he did Bon Jovi songs but he did like Don't Look Back in Anger and just a bunch of covers and then about three or four songs into the set he did Stranger in This Town and I'm not ashamed to say that I wept because this was a song that I thought I'd never get to hear and it's my favourite song of all time and yeah he left Bon Jovi in 2013 apparently because he couldn't handle the touring he didn't want to be away from his family anymore he felt like he was missing his daughter growing up and things like that so he left Bon Jovi mid-tour with no warning and it's kind of a shame that that partnership has kind of been broken because I remember reading somewhere like the Bon Jovi Sambora songwriting partnership and performing partnership I remember seeing someone compare it to David Bowie and Mick Ronson the kind of chemistry that they had and the things they were able to do together however it has meant that he has done a couple of solo tours since then and I've got to see him a couple more times so you know it's kind of column A column B the dissolution of my favourite band or the chance to hear my favourite songs you know you've got to take the good with the bad I guess well mentioning his choice of covers brings me round to the one thing I do not like about this album at all. You may be ahead of me here. First of mm-hmm. all, I'll just get out of the way and say I was very pleased to see in the credits somebody playing the Chapman stick, which is that weird modified bass guitar that caused Grace Dent such amusement on the familiar. <laughs> but some additions to this album have a cover of The Wing Cries Mary by Jimi Hendrix, which yep. is one of my favourite songs of all time. I even like Jamie Cullum's version of it. This, about 15 seconds in, I was just thinking stop now because <laughs> my problem is kind of you know Hendrix's original was written as an apology to Kathy Etchingham and he performs it like an apology it's got that real kind of edge of regret to it mm-hmm. and it's quiet and muted almost like a whisper and this just seems like Richie Sambora has bought a new guitar and wants to show off with it <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it I'm prepared that you might feel very differently to me on that score I mean I don't think it's terrible I think it's all right I, it is a bonus track you know I don't think it deserves to be in amongst the rest of the album but I do because I love like When Christ Mary is my favourite Hendrix song it always has been and I think he is kind of going for a different tone with it he's kind of I think it's his tribute to Jimi Hendrix himself because like right at the end he ends by going and the wind cries and then you can hear Jimi sort of during the fade out so I think he's going for a completely different tone but I think anyone trying to cover Hendrix is never going to be as good as the original and you know even as I say that he's you know he's my one of my favorite artists I think it's anyone trying to like because I have the feeling same feeling about like Stevie Ray Vaughan doing Little Wing and things like that they always add their own flair to it and it's never quite as good as the original and yeah I don't think it's a bad cover I I don't have quite the same sort of visceral reaction to it that you did. 
but I think that's a fair point when you consider the context of the original, yeah. It might not be very well remembered, but the stranger in this town at least isn't as strange as a Wikipedia or streaming. Podcaster Al Kennedy, on the other hand, wanted to talk about a television quiz show that is literally only one other reference to on the whole of the internet. Muriel Gray right, is one of these people who, if you are Scottish and of a certain vintage, you remember her never being off the telly. Muriel Gray presented the Monroe Show, which was a you'll get your outdoors climbing hills kind of thing because you know, in Scotland, any hill above certain heights is classed as a Monroe and there are a number of organisations that are dedicated to what they call Monroe bagging, which is going out and you know, being able to kind of take them off in your ice by book, say, I've climbed this thing. And Muriel Gray had this show based around this for quite a while, actually, on BBC. And for some reason, the BBC, in their infinite wisdom, decided that what this needed was a spin-off show that was a panel quiz show about Scotland, where the prize was a golden cagoule. The name of the show was the golden cagoule, the prize was the golden cagoule, the theme tune went, the golden cagoule, the golden cagoule. You wear it to work, you wear it to school, and so on. <laughs> it was awful. Like, this kind of very, very cheap, and just, it was just rubbish as a panel show at all. Like, there was one round where they had to, like, read out the words to Loch Lomond, or something like that, I seem to remember. And there was nothing to it beyond that. It was literally just like, let's have Donnie Monroe from Runrig reciting these words. And it was absolutely it it looked so cheap it looked so tacky everyone involved seems to have absolutely sworn off it and promised to never talk about it again and it was a show that my family never missed we literally never missed an episode of it we would sit and watch the golden cagoule every single week and i do not know why well one thing that i mean i have when i say i've got more to say about it i've got more to say about how little i've been able to find out about it but one <laughs> thing that really struck me from you know what little look up read about it was i think a lot of what vic reeves did early on was based on bad or dull or boring or misguided television that he'd seen the big one that i think is vic reeves big night out in so many mm-hmm. ways is clearly modeled on are you aware of bruce forsyth's big night where it was you know when he was at his absolute height of fame in the 70s with the generation game and obviously that was the big saturday night show as always happens itv waved a lot of money under his nose and they basically said well you're going to do all the saturday night for us it's called bruce Forsyth's big night and it was almost like genuinely like they just put him in front of a camera and expected things to happen and you know he'd come on they do it oh doing the song and dance and then cannon and ball would come on or something and then there'd be a game show like the pyramid game would come into it but there was no running time it was just bruce doing everything and then things happened around him it didn't last very long and famously they show on things every so often where he has a q a with the audience and somebody says what do you think about the poor reception to the show and he goes into like an almost 10 minute rant about it makes a lot of fair points about the press and how you get criticized if you try something different you get criticized if you do exactly the same thing mm. the best bit of that is he kind of blames the audience says People thought Glitter was going to come out of the set. You know, that, <laughs> you feel for him, but he's trying to defend something that Clive James once said. There was no format. It was just a long show. It was just a big night. But yeah. so much of that is so similar to Vic Brees' Big Night Out. But I think he had seen the Golden Cagoule 
and it partially inspired shooting stars. I think that is probably right because it had a very similar kind of vibe, except obviously shooting stars was very aware of the ridiculousness. I kind of think seeing what Muriel Gray has said about it on Twitter, I think she also thought the Golden Girl was completely ridiculous and was effectively a daft bit of mucking about. I don't think they thought that they were creating the new university challenge, but the calibre of the actual show itself really, I think, let down the people who were involved. Because Muriel Gray is, you know, a long-time Scottish broadcaster. You know, she's got a lot of hits under her belt. She's got a lot of work to her name. And I'm pretty sure that when Muriel Gray goes on Desert Island Discs, they're not going to go and have the presenter of the Golden Cagoule. Well, that's a very significant thing, is I I think, particularly in the 80s, nobody really knew what to do with Muriel Gray. Because, you know, there she is. She's this incredibly intelligent, perceptive, media-savvy woman, which is a problem for television at that time, at that point. Mm-hmm. Also, she doesn't look conventional. She's got that very kind of 80s before yeah, the she does, the, fringe look. So Yeah, very spiky dyed hair. My yeah. memory is that she'd do all these like really intellectual programmes to present the design awards and things like that. But you'd also see her presenting schools television. She presented a Channel 4 youth show called Bliss, which I remember not really working because, let's be honest, she was a lot cleverer than the programme and a lot of the guests were. I think that was the main <laughs> problem there. And also, this is completely forgotten, she was never a full-time Radio 1 DJ, but she used to stand in for people like John Peel, Janice Long and Jonathan Ross on the holiday cover. Uh-huh. And so it was almost like there were people within the broadcasting industry thinking, we can't let somebody this smart and unconventional loose on the public. We've got to rein her in a bit give her more conventional work to do and maybe this was kind of part and parcel of that as well don't you go around being too clever missy here's a here's a terrible quiz to put you in your place the difficulty that i mean like it was made by gallaspism which is muriel gray's own production okay company. well that, there goes my theory so... then <laughs> But the most fascinating thing I found out about it is, first of all, I need to check with you. Is this the internet winding me up? Or were the team captains Jimmy McGregor, the folk singer, and Donnie Munro from Rundig? Is that true? Yes. This is absolutely true. Now, this was absolutely the peak time of, I appreciate Rumrig are regional legends. I appreciate they got this very long career. But if you were anywhere else in the UK, you'd never heard them. But there's this relentless kind of, oh, you know Rumrig. Oh, you love them campaign. (laughs) I don't even know who they are. I remember finally hearing (laughs) them on the top 40 on Radio 1 in about 1994 and thinking, oh, right, okay. But there was that weird kind of pushing of Rumrig, which I've never quite understood. But the other thing, is on UK game shows which is now a really exhaustive site about basically every game show that's ever been on TV and radio the bit where they say the information we have for this programme is uncertain or incomplete if you've any other information to add to this entry please send it to us using the feedback form below thank you it's longer than the sum total of any detail I've got about the golden cool <laughs> there's one place where the golden cocoon might have sparked off a little bit of discussion then it was possibly possibly on the viewer correspondence pages of the bbc's teletact service cfax long before she became a popular tweeter qil for lydia myerson was a regular contributor to cfax's backchat pages and it's very close if more cynical rival on channel 4 hello to the 12 people out there that remember backchat and zine backchat and zine were forums when forums weren't really a thing both of them were pages on teletext i wish i could remember which pages they were i think the zine might have been 142 on channel 4 and they were sort of rotating as everything with teletext you go to a page and then it it just 
rotates around so it goes through there's eight pages it rotates every minute or 30 seconds or whatever and you read the messages and if you don't finish reading the messages in time tough luck you have to wait until they scroll around again if you're under the age of 25 this is going to sound insane but this is what happened and so back chat was very uncynical and peppy and you know people maybe under the age of 12 would write in and they would be like oh my god have you heard the new britney spears single it's amazing love from Lucy in Plymouth and then somebody else would write my geography teacher is so boring love from Daniel in Walsgrave and it was just that it was just very uncynical but I was really entranced by it because here were people with little messages and you would get as in forums you would get little in jokes repetitive things you would get sort of slightly early memes where people kept writing in riffing on the same joke and then you go over to zine on channel four and it's like the very unimpressed older sister of Backchat. And so I sort of flipped between the two. I wrote into Zine a couple of times and got my messages on there and I've never felt cooler than when I had my name or my, because you didn't write in with your real name on Zine. You had to find a cool pseudonym. There would be a person that was sort of overseeing it all and they'd write little sort of quirky offbeat messages after all of them that would appear at the bottom of the screen. Zine had its own little culture where they really hated the Manic Street Preachers and the person that moderated it was called WLW which I think was White Line Warrior. I don't know what that really means. I was wanted to be more of a Zine person than a Backchat person but I couldn't really give either of them up. And so before I actually migrated on to a Ben Folds 5 forum in maybe 2001, 2002, and really found my internet feet, Backchat and Zine were these very early examples of people writing in their opinions and getting them published. And you had to post them. I posted things to Zine, or I think maybe you could call as well, but I definitely posted things to Zine with a stamp and a post box. It's an incredibly inefficient way of getting your point across, but that's how you did it in 1999. Like, it was really different times and it seems like an incredibly old-fashioned thing now but to me at the time they were just super exciting oh yeah because it was absolutely a very big thing if you got your name onto any of the teletext services yeah. you know, whether it was cfax or oracle stroke teletext as it became or fortel which is the original channel four one i can't remember if it did any others but i know one time i definitely wrote into cfax it was after the pilot for kytv was on right. in i think it was 1989 say how much i liked it you know that was on cfax and that was it was a little like being a celebrity yeah, you're famous. Like, that's how you get on telly. And it's weird to think that, you know, at that point, not just was teletext as futuristic as it got, not all televisions had it. Yeah. So it was, it felt very exclusive as well, very high status. People absolutely love these services. That's how it's so sad to see them go. Which, you know, they served no purpose anymore, really, by about, I mean, it was relatively recent, wasn't it, when they were decommissioned? I think they were still super popular. I remember reading something about teletext being really popular in prisons it was the closest you could get to the internet well the very earliest internet was really quite like teletext in yeah. a way when I look back on it now you know it was that thing of waiting for pages to load of information being split across pages I've been looking into this apparently Z was originally called Magazine and they yeah. dropped the Mega eventually I think they probably thought it was a little too uncool but I didn't stop them billing it as this is the place for yo yeah it's like, welcome to your very own mag so you know they were trying to do that kind of number one magazine hip talk which didn't work especially because it was mostly framing as you say a lot of like very pretentious attempts at topical satire that didn't quite work it was all just like offbeat people i don't think anybody i'm gonna make an assumption now and if anybody was like super into zine and cooler than i was 
audience that I'm really sorry, but I don't think anyone on Zine knew what really was going on. I think everybody <laughs> was trying to be cool. I was a very, very uncool. I was so like not, I wasn't a cool person at school. I couldn't figure out why I wasn't cool, but I like, I just knew that what it, whatever cool was, I wasn't it. But I wrote into Zine with something which I thought sounded like a joke that was like cynical enough that they might like or like an opinion that I thought like might get on there that I didn't even really hold. It was just something I just thought I can write something that sounds like what they're writing. And I put my little thing on the bottom, which was like a Simpsons reference. And I thought like whatever like I'll post this maybe maybe they'll think I'm cool and post it and they did and I was like you guys have fallen for it like I'm cool now because I you know you don't know how uncool I am in real life but I've written something which has tricked you into thinking I'm one of you and like I just you know so desperate to be accepted as this person like there were no I went to a school went to a grammar school with no real people that were into what I was into so I was really into Ben Folds 5 which is a sort of really uncool american piano band which i was just really into i was really into like things like look around you which was afterwards but there's humor like that that nobody i just didn't have any friends that had the same interest as i did but here on cfax was the beginnings of people starting to talk about things that i could vaguely relate to and i was promised that by university as well like when you get to university there will be people there that share your interests and that turned out to be correct at school i felt very isolated so as sad as it sounds like zine started to talk to me in a way that I wanted to be talked to as a very sort of of eye-rolling teenager desperate to be treated like an adult when I didn't know what that actually meant and I didn't know who any of these people were I want I really wonder what these people are up to now there was a really prolific person who used to write in called Fluffy the Evil One which you know when you're that was like the height of humor would be like ha ha Fluffy the Evil One like ha 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 Fluffy and evil. What two opposing characteristics. Fluffy the evil one. If you're out there, I'm sorry. I don't mean to like denigrate you, but that was was how it, that was the height of humour in 2000. Like, I wonder who that person is. Like, what did they do with their lives? Because they were just so, they were such a prolific writer. They might have been somebody I knew. I bet that, you know, maybe they're working in television now. They had a really creative way with words. It was the internet before the internet for me. And it was so, it was such a revelation, but I could never really like grasp. I could never really feel part of it in the same way I didn't feel part of any real clique at school but they published a couple of my things and so I felt included and I remember once someone did a post of like a list of what they were getting all of the zeners for Christmas and they included me in that and I thought like oh my god I'm part of something even though I think they probably just written down a list of like random names from the previous day zine and written some random presents in there I felt included in that and so it was a real that's how I you know the forums that I went into as a late teenager and in my early 20s when I was at university helped also find a sense of belonging that I didn't get in general society until really late university and so it was important to me and that chat too I think was a much less cynical version of that and helped me sort of indulge my childlike side I don't think I ever wrote into that but there was a lot of sort of manufactured rivalry Zine really hated Batchat, I think, because they were the uncool younger sibling. I wanted to be part of them both. I enjoyed the fact that we could all come together from different parts of the country and mention what bands we liked. And I think that's still, you know, that's how Twitter works in a way now. That's how nice Twitter works. We all talk about things we 
like and the eye rolling aspects of zine are less favoured now but that's what works when you're 15 years old well I was going to say I like the idea that the equivalents are going viral in those days was somebody getting three words before the end of what you said and it rolls onto the next page and like oh I'll have to wait for you to come back on <laughs> I now. really want to see this unfortunately there's very little of either of them out there but two of the examples I found are really posing more questions than I expected there are some zine pages where it indicates that the sections are now you might be able to set me straight on this but sounds angst pen pals and macaulay now is that macaulay colkin about seven years after he'd stopped being a thing or is it fred macaulay from the after the clock show being given undue prominence i don't know is the answer to that i think maybe it was a problem page or something i don't remember macaulay it does sound like something you know they've picked this uncool person to have a little page about maybe it's a problem page isn't it? the main example of back chat that i found first of all there's a big long thing about soliciting entries of their review of 96 where it's a big <laughs> long it basically says maybe you went along to see oasis at nebworth or euro 96 at wembley have you enjoyed tim henman's tennis success or damon's f1 championship win what about the jarvis jacko saga to take that split or the spice girls what was your favorite film or an event that made you angry or sad yeah so you basically just got list of things that happened this year what are you annoyed about but then there's a page of correspondence where what really struck me i mean there are things like rachel age 11 from leeds wrote in and said the grand national is a barbaric event in the sporting calendar that's the long and short of a comment but elsewhere on there there's a comment saying gehen is blue peter yes it's one of those teletext typos but further down the page there is also Gahai are the prices of Sega and Nintendo games so high and the consoles so cheap which you know it's a question that answers itself but also I wonder if Richard Herring's venture in the Quiz Dummy Ali was writing all of these <laughs> given the prevalence of G's Gehen is Blue Peter going to stop being a 30 minute advert for different theme parks by David age 18 from Salisbury now it's not aimed at you, David. Yeah, David. You, you, why are you watching it at 18? I mean, you've just seen it when your little sibling's been watching it and you've formed some opinions based on... Do you think he just failed to make Tracy Ireland successfully and you're still resentful yeah, about maybe that five just, years yeah, later? Maybe he's just angry <laughs> about it. But this is the thing. It was the sounding off page for people's useless opinions, 10-year-old's useless opinions. Oh, there's someone on there from Ferndown, which is... I'm looking at the same page as you. Ferndown is... is two miles from the village where i grew up it's very close i would just like to say that i think grange hill and the biz which i have no idea what that is are a lot better than blue peter well bully for you mark in fact well they're now. different programs they're not kind completely of different genres well equatable you know, in any form back in the day you would write in back chat and tell them that and two weeks later they might post it like it's just yeah it's the it's twitter now basically it's just very very slow twitter of just people with their wrong opinions <laughs> just telling but all of these people People mostly at you know the average age of the back chat poster is maybe 12 and the average age of the zine poster is maybe 16 or 17 so you know nobody's really worth taking very seriously sometimes people do take themselves too seriously though and david recently appeared on my marvel cinematic universe podcast it's good except it sucks talking about the recent disney plus series based on marvel's ancient mythology fueled middle east based military grade vigilante moon knight and this was how he responded to some of the more bizarre responses to the series. People seem like they want to turn everything that Marvel makes into sort of the Dark Knight, basically, when they hear it. They want, this is going to be Marvel's gritty. This is going to be Marvel's sort of dark, and it's going to be brutal, and it's going to be violent, and it's going to put off all the Marvel fans that they've amassed over the past 12 years. And yeah, I mean, there will be some, I think later down the line, there are going to be some R-rated stuff. There's going to be Deadpool. There's going to be Blade. But this is still, this is a TV show. It's still got, it's got to appeal to the fans, especially 
especially when you're taking a risk on a new and relatively obscure character. You know, you've already got people on board with one division and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You've got them on board Disney Plus and all this sort of format. Then you start bringing in people they've never seen before. You want to make sure that you retain that audience while also giving them something they've never seen before. And if you completely change it and turn it into Zack Snyder's Justice League, it's not going to be it's going to be too much of a tonal shift. And the idea that, oh, they're finally they're going to do something for smart people. That implies that the entire thing that they've done before has been for idiots. Like the entire Infinity Saga, the entire sort of all the stuff that's come before, they're saying, oh, there's there's not been a hint of intelligence in that. And that's really condescending. And also, I don't think there's anything as great as Moon Knight is. I don't think there's anything particularly special about it compared to the rest of them in terms of you don't need to have a degree in Egyptology to be able to understand it. I mean, it probably would have helped because there were a lot of gods to keep track of in that scene in the pyramid. But other than that, I think it seemed it was relatively accessible. Yeah. And now something you might not have heard. I've recently recorded the commentary for the Blu-ray release of the legendary 1969 ITV folk horror-based children's series The Owl Service, based on the book by Alan Garner, and also four made by the same production team a couple of years later. The slightly more obscure The Intruder, based on the book by John Rowe Townsend, which hasn't actually been seen anywhere in any form since 1974. If you're into that sort of strand of drama, you will love both of these. Hopefully you'll love my commentary, and you're about to find out whether you will or not, because here, giving you some idea what you'll find is an extract from one of the commentaries on the owl service so how did i come to be so interested in the owl service if where we left the story last time i hadn't even read it well i mentioned that i had probably done funeral in berlin for that school book report and by that point i was very into collecting film and TV tie-in paperbacks and any sort of similarly exotic looking paperback. And I used to spend hours scouring, you know, charity shops and school fairs, which is the only place you could really look in those days because there wasn't eBay or anything. And it was still quite easy to find a lot of them because I suppose people were just offloading stuff in bulk as soon as it had really passed its, well, its shelf life, I suppose. Because in those days, again, there wasn't really the market for looking at this stuff anew later down the line. In fact, it wasn't really, really long enough because even like compilations and reissues of pop and rock music didn't really start until the early 70s. So anyway, it was really easy to find all this stuff. And I remember finding things like the novels based on The Prisoner, some of the Man From Uncle novels, Adam Diamond's spy novels from the 60s, which are a really big deal in the time, but they're sort of really being forgotten about now because he sort of... He was the next big thing as a writer and he just kind of walked away from it. And there were various rumours about where he ended up. Apparently he ended up teaching in Zurich was the latest thing that has come to light. The novel of performance as well, the McJacker film. A lot of this stuff I probably shouldn't have been reading. But anyway, one day at a school fair, I found the Peacock Books, which is an imprint of Penguin Books edition of The Owl Service, which is the actual TV tie-in edition. I've got it in front of me now, but I can still remember the moment that I first saw it because it's got this amazing colour, full cover still with a sort of bluish tinge of Gwyn really in the foreground looking distant. Alison looking at him with a really confused expression and Roger scowling in the background half out of focus. And it was a real, what is this moment? It was almost like, and forgive me for being a little bit pretentious here, like you could see through the photograph into the story that was actually inside the book. But if I was having high-flown thoughts like that, 
I came down to earth with a bang almost straight away because later on at that school fair, I was standing on one of those small walls with no purpose. You never seemed to get in schools. I was showing off to some girls, possibly including the one who'd done the book report on the owl service. Literally, as I'm recording this, someone I know who's still in contact with her is actually asking her to check if she remembers anything about that. And while they were showing off, I fell off and I tore the sleeve of my new Puma tracksuit top. Now, some of you are probably thinking, hang on, tracksuit, girls, who let this flash Harry into Archive TV land? Well, I'd hesitate to say that I was ever a normal kid, but I was relatively normal. I just never really took to football, despite being from a really, well, football-crazy family. And something else had to fill the gap, I suppose. And for me, it was all this old stuff. But, in fact, a few of my oldest friends, you know, from the same area, same age as me, have very similar story about how they develop similar interests to me. Thinking about it, that might have had something to do with Granada Television's liking for doing archive shows and for just generally going a bit weird like they did with the Owl Service. But Granada are something I'm going to come back to, so a bit more about that later on. But really, kind of part of the reason that I brought that, well, slightly embarrassing tale up is that I know there are people out there who would recoil at the idea that you know, somebody, as I say, in a Puma tracksuit showing off to girls would have been that eager to collect the TV time paperback of the Owl service. And, you know, there are people who basically their attitude is, oh, nobody understands me except Hugh Halfbacon and maybe the Border TV end cap from 1978. And, well, frankly, you know, good on you. I'm glad you like this stuff. And I love hearing from or about anyone who is genuinely enthusiastic about anything that I like. But the point is that that should be literally anyone, absolutely anyone. And my heart always sinks a bit when people get a little exclusionary about all of these niche interests, because we should be trying to bring the joy of all of this to everyone, just allowing everyone in, finding ways to bring them in. You know, a couple of years back, I went on a date with someone who she actually thought I was going to think she was weird because she was obsessed with the Box of Delights. And I felt like saying, listen, I've got Funny Game Politics, the album that that was the week that was team did with George Martin, based on the stage review they did where they legally weren't allowed to port from the TV series that was the week that was. So, you know, I think I know a little about being in that mindset. And if you want some proof that I'm not that different from the rest of you after all, I can tell you that it still, still irks me that while I've got the tie-in paperback of the Owl Service itself, I never, ever found filming the Owl Service, which was published by Armada Books in 1917. It's sort of production diary cobbled together from, you know, bits of scripts and shooting schedules and people's memories of working on it. And I tell you what, I bet Russell Hugh Davis has got a copy of it. But even then it was worth an unusual amount. I remember there used to be a bookshop in Liverpool called Chapter One, where the Bill Oddie guy who ran that, he really, really knew his prices. He knew how to spot a rarity. And the main thing about that is, you know, most things, even the things like the novels of UFO and Time Slip will be relatively modestly priced. But things like the Pan Book of Horror, which were already out of print by that point, I remember this so vividly. You go in, you see him sorting through a stack of books that have some pan books of horror in it. Suddenly, a bloke would appear from nowhere. They were always dressed like their idea of Doctor Who, like as if, 
you know, someone from the BBC would see them walking down the street with their slightly different to Tom Baker's hat hat and their scarf that wasn't quite a scarf and their sort of Edwardian-ish coat and say, you're exactly what we're looking for. We'll hire you on the spot, sight unseen. But they bound up to the counter and before he'd had the chance to port any of the pan books of horror on the shelves, they would ask for them and the money would not even have landed in his hand and they'd be skipping off down the street with them. But yeah, he knew how much the owl service was worth. I think it was charged at £10 in those days. It seemed extortionate to me and, you know, completely un- not anything I could be spending money on. And now it seems to go on eBay for about £200. And if anything ever underlined the fact that I cannot believe there is not a market for reissuing old paperbacks. I mean, recently I've been astonished how difficult it is to get hold of the novel that I start counting, which is a 1969 film that bears a lot of similarities to the Owl Service. Again, something I'll come back to. Now, that is virtually impossible to get hold of. That was a bestseller in its day, and it inspired, you know, quite a high-profile film. So why is nobody reissuing these things, you know, with the original covers and maybe an introductory essay by, well, Russell T. Davis or somebody. I just don't understand why that isn't happening. And if you want to know more, or if you just want to know what happened next after I fell off that wall, you can get the owl service and the intruder from, well, all good shops that sell spooky old children's cereals on Blu-ray. Don't forget you can find the full versions of all of these editions of Looks Unfamiliar, plus David talking about Moonlight, and plenty more besides, at my website, timworthington.org. While you're there, why not help support Looks Unfamiliar by buying one of my books, or buying me a coffee? Don't fall off a wall while you're holding it. His explanation, this old bloke, he's walking along and hazelnuts fall on him from the mm. sky. And he goes, mm. well, I think it might have been a vortex that sucked them up. Where you suck up hazelnuts from in March, I don't know. Mm. And then his friend comes along and says that he was also showered with hazelnuts from the same place, wasn't he? Yes. And your theory... Was it the topic factory? <laughs> well, Lisa, your theory is there's yeah. just somebody in a window upstairs throwing hazelnuts at passers. Yeah. There's nothing mysterious about it. They've got a load of hazelnuts <laughs> left over from Christmas and they just throw them at random old people. Yeah. Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and more albums of Birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details, timworthington.org. Although it's not quite as weird as the cover of this issue with TV Times, which has Harry Fowler forcibly shaving Kenny Lynch. I don't know what that was about. I don't want to know what it was about. And scrolling through as well, I found a photo of Sweep, as in the puppet dog that was mates with Sooty, playing the trumpet. And I don't know what that's about, but I really want to know what that's about. Also, I've just noticed this seems to be a very short-lived experiment. Some of the listings have little scroll cartoon representations of things like Jason King and the Rovers Return of Coronation Street, but sadly, they haven't done one of Milton Johns for The Intruder. And you can also, right at the end of the issue, send off for a TV Times smiley face apron, but yeah, you guessed it, they don't have a Milton Johns face apron either. <laughs>